some of you will know, you'll know that occasionally I, I give out a wee plug, perhaps for something that myself or Elizabeth and I have been watching. And I'm going to give a wee plug this morning about a film that we saw just the other night, Official Secrets. Now, first of all, if you don't have Netflix, I don't think you can watch it. So that's the first thing. And I hasten to add, this service is not sponsored by Netflix or by any media outlet. And nor, and I did, spawn, I did mention a film once before, and some dear souls watched it and were a bit taken aback by the language. I have to say the language in some parts of the film is quite strong, but if you follow the story, you'll understand why. I have to commend it to you. It's based, and very accurately based, because they've done a wee bit of research, based on the story of a lady called Catherine Gunn, who worked in GHCQ, is it, in Cheltenham back in the early 2000s. And she became a, a celebrity of sorts because there was a law case put forward by the Crown Prosecution Service under a breach of the Official Secrets Act. She had been involved, along with many others in GHCQ, listening in to conversations. Just be aware of what one says and does, especially on your mobile phone. And she was involved, again, along with others, in finding out and reading a memo which had been sent by British intelligence and by American intelligence inviting GHCQ to spy on delegates from different countries to the United Nations who were on the Security Council of the United Nations. This was back 2003. Those of you who've got better memories or longer memories or are old enough will remember that was in the run-up to the Gulf War, not to the Gulf War, but yes, the, the, the second Gulf War, the invasion of Iraq and the whole question of whether Saddam Hussein had these weapons of mass destruction. And this memo invited the GHCQ to spy on these delegates in the Security Council in the United Nations, people who the Americans particularly, but also the British thought, weren't going to fall into line and vote for a resolution of the Security Council, which would have meant that the invasion of Iraq was legal. And they were to spy on them to see if there was any way they could persuade them, either through blackmail or other means, to fall into line and to vote for the Security Council resolution. This lady, rightly so, knew that was wrong. And she passed on the information to the newspaper, to the Observer newspaper, and the story goes on. I'm not going to tell you too much of the story, obviously. I invite you to follow and to watch the film. But it was a reminder, if we need reminded, that we live in a day, and, and this last two years, in many ways, is no different from what went on with the Iraq war, or when things were going on in Northern Ireland, or whatever. We live in a day where, as Christians, while we might be called to be good citizens, being a good citizen, as that woman was, means we don't kowtow always to the state or to the government, because they are fallen human beings like we are, and sometimes, indeed sadly more often than we would like to admit, they cannot, they think the ends justify the means. We now, of course, know about the dodgy dossiers and about the things that went on. We also know about the consequences of that war and the mess that we made in the Middle East and the consequences of that even today. Sin breeds sin. And if we think, well, that happened then, well, we're living in a day where who was at what party at what time in Downing Street? 
And just in case you think it's only Boris who's a bit of a buffoon in some ways that gets into these troubles, I can assure you our first minister in the Scottish government isn't without fault either. We just don't hear about it too much. And so in such an environment where many people might not be conspiracy theorists, but increasingly questioning and skeptical whether there's anything we can possibly believe is true, whether anyone can be trusted, especially those who are in authority, whether there's any integrity or morals or uprightness in public life, in that insidious virus of skepticism and cynicism that's so prevalent in the West and within our own contemporary setting, how vital it is that as Christians, to quote the words we mentioned last Sunday, that Luke wrote to Theophilus, that we may know the certainty of the things that we have been taught, that we might be sure and confident and clear about what is true and who can be trusted and by what authority they can be trusted, and how confident we can be that our hope will not be in vain. And look, and in the same way as the film, I don't want to tell you too much about the film, obviously if you do watch it, I do commend it to you, as it unpacks what went on, and evidence was sought for this, that, and other. So in a sense, that's what Luke is doing here, as all the gospel writers do. He's drawing together witnesses to the truth that is in Jesus. And particularly in this chapter, and that's why you really need to have the chapter open in front of you. In Luke chapter 5, he brings in these witnesses, these people whose lives have been impacted, these situations that have been transformed, these circumstances that have been changed and turned upside down as evidence that stands the test of time and proves that Jesus is who he said he was. As he says right at the end of the section we're looking at in verse 31 of chapter 5, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the people who are brought on here and other parts of the gospel, of course, are quite particular. Jesus meets with these different people where they are. So we read in beginning of chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the Word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let the nets down. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, and so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to heal them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. 
So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Jesus met that sound we heard at the beginning, the Jesus who touched, the Jesus who walked, the Jesus who smelt the fish, the Jesus who was able to embrace people and and move about and, and to listen and all the rest of it. Here's the Jesus that meets where people are. And we are the body of Christ. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Here are the fishermen, Simon Peter. And I think as you read this story, you can see that, yes, faithful fishermen as they were, there is a certain degree of weariness put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answers, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't got in. Just imagine Peter thinking, oh, listen, bless you. I really thought your sermon was wonderful as I listened to you speak from the boat. You're obviously very eloquent and able, but please don't tell me how to fish because I've been doing it for years. And long before EU quarters or Brexit quarters came in, the fish stocks are dwindling and it's getting harder to get a catch. You can just imagine Peter saying that. And yet, what did he do? He had heard on what Jesus had said and the fact that he, a rabbi, that's how they would have recognized him at that point, was willing to get into their boat, unlike the other rabbis who fancied being in their pool. That's why I'm not very keen being stuck in this pool. But, but you know what I mean? Fancied being in their wee boxes and kept keeping away from people. The fact that he was willing to get up into that boat and into their lives and into their circumstances, what does Peter do? He says, well, I might as well go for it. And what was the result? The result was they were filled with awe. My friends, when was the last time you were filled with awe? When was the last time your heart was filled to bursting with wonder at something you've seen or heard or experienced or done? COVID has robbed us of so much, hasn't it? And yet, as we read these stories, that's the theme. That's one of the great themes. They were filled with awe. They were amazed. They were stirred. How we long in our society that men and women would be stirred and amazed with the name of Jesus. But it'll begin when you and I are filled and amazed with the name of Jesus. And not just amazed, but filled with a sense of their sinfulness and their need. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And it's infectious. The partner's of the firm, James and John, were also stirred and they left their nets and followed him. And then we read the story of the leper. And again, let me just read it to you. I mean, in many ways, you should just read it. Think for yourself, rather than me going on. Well, Jesus was in the towns, verse 12, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. And what did he do? He prayed. My friends, if Jesus prayed, I don't think you need to. To be isolated, to be looked down upon, for people to cross to the other side of the street, 
and tell their children, don't go near him, don't go near her. Don't touch anything that she's been at or sit where he is or anything else. That was the consequences of a dreaded skin disease. It was seen as a consequence perhaps of some sin in your life or of your parents or grandparents. You're getting what you deserve. Outwardly, you're showing the disease of your own heart. How people can quickly use their pride to look down on others and see the speck not just in the eye, but in the skin of their brother or sisters, and ignore the stain and the weald of wounds in their own lives. And again, like Simon Peter and the disciples, there's a note almost of weary desperation. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean, falling down on his face and begging him. And what does Jesus do? Does he dither? Does he engage in a lengthy conversation? Does he ask just what kind of situation this man is in, his domestic affairs or his financial circumstances of what he did when he was 12, when he fell out the pram or anything else, you know, all that kind of stuff? No, he comes with the power of God. And he says, I am willing. And then go. It's not James and John, the brothers or partners of Simon Peter, that are going to hear of this amazing thing. It's the establishment. It's the elders and the ministers. Oh, that somebody might walk in one Sunday through that door and stand amongst us and bear witness to how the grace of God had transformed their life last week. we would fall down and give thanks to God. And then the paralyzed man, we've read the section. Those dear friends, good to know friends, isn't it? You always know your friends, true friends, when you're in a time of need. And these guys or women, I presume it was the men, unfortunately, but you know, that team went to all the trouble. We know the story well, going up on the roof and all the rest of it, lowering it down. Why? Because they loved that man. God warns us that in these latter days, men's love and women's love for others will grow cold. But here was love for someone yearning that they might be helped and seeking out the one that they believed could help him. And they lowered him through the roof. And we read that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's not that his legs didn't need to be healed, and he did do that as a demonstration of the power of God, but he knows the real ailment that afflicts all of us, whether we're hale and hearty or whether we're not, whether we've survived the COVID or whether we're struggling, whether we're going about here this morning or whether we're still sitting at home. He knows what goes on within the human heart. Indeed, it tells us in verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And ask the Pharisees who are muttering and complaining and moaning, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Jesus sees and knows the need of the human heart. And sometimes perhaps as we're sitting talking, it may be that my friend that I met on Thursday is listening to this, I don't know. But I can see the need in your heart. And that's what we need, that sensitivity of the Spirit, so that when we're listening, not always talking, but when we're listening, we discern the need of the heart. What really is the matter with their soul? And then lastly, this healing of, or not healing, but the meeting with Levi. Verse 27, after this, Jesus went out 
and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, let's be honest, and I hope, hope you're not a tax man. Maybe you are. But they're not always the most favorite, are they? I had to fill, well, I didn't have to fill in the form. Um, our accountant filled in the form for ministers. And don't we say we always hate that time of year? I do know some ministers who actually, when you go and get a cup of tea at the man's, they actually put a wee note in the book that they've given you a cup of tea and a biscuit. <laughs> Thank God we've never done that. <laughs> but of course, in the ancient world, it wasn't just Her Majesty's revenue that we were all a bit kind of... These were people who had sold themselves out to work for Rome. They had gone over to the dark side. They had sold themselves into the service of the enemy. And so Levi might as well be covered in spots from head to toe, have a, bl a bleed, as the women did, that couldn't be cured, and practically everything else that was in the book of Leviticus that made you were somebody who was unclean. But he may have looked okay, but as far as everybody else was concerned, he was beyond the pale. And yet, what does Jesus do? He goes out and speaks to the man and invites him to follow him. And Levi is so transformed and impacted by the fact that Jesus, a rabbi, should make any effort to have any conversation and concern him that he has him back at the house and he has a party and he invites around his mates and says, listen, you'll need to come and meet this guy. He's not like the rest of that religious lot who keep themselves away and are always looking down their noses at him and are probably on the make as well. He actually was interested. And has his mates round for a pint and a curry. And they meet with Jesus, who has come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus meets with people where they are. Jesus deals, better get back to the points of the order of service. Jesus deals with the real issues that are in people's lives. And Jesus causes a reaction. That's one of the sad things over this last two years particularly, just how weak the church has been. So caught up with internal debates over certain matters, we fail to speak prophetically into our society. No wonder people walk past the door. Maybe not this church, but just generally. But the Jesus that's the king and head of the church, the one that we read of in the Gospels, when he moved about, there were waves, there always were. 
There were those who loved to listen to him and wanted to follow him. There were others who were at least stirred in their interest and were provoked to consider more. And there were those, as the Pharisees make it clear, who complained, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Interesting enough, it was the religious establishment that found him most offensive. Wherever Jesus walked, there was a reaction. You couldn't be indifferent to Jesus. You know how so often in television, when they betray vicars or ministers, they're always usually either, well, limp-wristed, wet kind of folk that, you know. And are pathetic, frankly. Jesus wasn't that. He was the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. His very presence oozed the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that moved over the waters at the dawn of time and brought forth creation, the same Spirit that was going to bring Jesus forth from the grave, the same Spirit that came upon the church in Pentecost, and the same Spirit, if we were a believer this morning, that lives within our hearts. So Jesus manifested that. We're told that the Spirit was with Him. Wherever God's people were living and working out their lives, listening and conversing, ministering and caring, touching and responding, and as we do so open to the Spirit of Jesus, there will always be a reaction. We may not always see it. Scots folk aren't the best at saying, wow, aren't they? But there will be a reaction. Some of it will be our action against what we believe and what we know and what is true. But for others, it will be the savor of life and the beginning of our journey of discovering for themselves who Jesus is. What was the consequences as we finish? Well, the consequences was that all these people left, in a sense, everything and followed. And what does that mean as we close our service today to leave everything? It doesn't mean that we don't go to our work tomorrow morning. We don't care for the people who we are responsible for or anything else. But what it does mean is where is our heart fixed? Where are we focusing on? Where are we reaching out to? It does mean that where our heart is. Oh, doesn't this sound familiar? Where our heart is, there our treasure will be be also. Who do we treasure most this morning? Who is the fairest of 10,000? Whose words are the words of life? Whose presence stills our heart with awe and we're filled with amazement? And in our hearts, we not only set him aside as Lord, but in our life, we walk his way and follow in his footsteps. At the very end of that film, as I close, I'm not going to tell too much, but the representative of the Crown Prosecution Service, a senior uh, member of that, is best friends with the lawyer, the barrister, who defends this Catherine girl. At the end of it, the case collapses. In fact, it's not even presented in the court. They go to court, must have cost thousands, but the Crown, the Crown don't present their case because they know if they do, all sorts of things will be revealed that they don't want, and so they just let her go. 
And at the very end of the film, the two men were friends, socialized together, and used to fish together. Some cove in Devon or somewhere else. And the good guy, the, the, the lawyer, the barrister who defends Catherine, he's out fishing. And the other guy comes along the beach with his fishing equipment and sidles alongside and says, well, you know, I, 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 I never really agreed that we should have gone after her. And, you know, and, but we had to try and kind of... And the guy just looked at him. And he said, would you mind go going and fish somewhere? Would Jesus say that? Will Jesus say that to you and me on that final day? Go away from me. I know you not, for you weren't one of those who fished for men and women. 